Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Irvine, you're listening to Ask a Leader. And in a few minutes, we'll be right back. What I wanted to bring up here for you right away is today's special program. We have, um, as our guests today, we're um, going to open here with, have you ever wondered who's minding the store of the next disaster around the corner, the medical disaster? Well, here on Ask a Leader, we don't prey upon those sensational topics, but today we're going to hear from the experts whose job it is to think ahead of the calamity. So we're going to uh, talk with um, public, well, we're going to think ahead of the calamity in order that the public health can be better prepared, better served for this whole hour. We'll hear from UC Irvine's new Center for Disaster Medicine Directors, Doctors, Christy Koenig and Dr. Carl Schultz, who will take, talk about how ready we are and how ready we could or should be when the quake, the germ, the sleeper cell goes down. They are constantly in demand around the world, but they're here with us today after this brief break. Thank you for joining us all here on Ask a Leader. Today we have a special program, and I say that because it's always special, and it's even more special today. I just um, would like to um, open here with the, I want to make sure I hear my friends here on, okay, here we go. I just want to make sure we're all together now. So what we're going to do is Dr. Christy Koenig, Koenig is the Director of Public Health Preparedness for UC Irvine Healthcare. She's an internationally recognized expert in the fields of homeland security, emergency preparedness, and response and emergency medical services. At UC Irvine Medical Center, Dr. Koenig trains emergency physicians to ensure patient assessments will be quick, accurate, and they will... Um, and effective in times of crisis. Uh, Dr. Koenig also serves on UC Irvine's Bioterrorism Committee to develop practical and realistic response plans in the event of a real or suspected terrorism attack. When terrorists struck World Trade Center 9-11, Koenig became one of the most sought-after international experts in disaster triage and emergency response. Today, she travels the world sharing her expertise in disaster medicine, public health preparedness, emergency management, and emergency medical services. My other guest, Dr. Carl Schultz, is an internationally recognized expert at the field of disaster medicine um, as professor of emergency uh, medicine at UC Irvine. Um, among other departments he heads there, he is the director of disaster medical assistance and um, just want to make sure I'm hearing everybody here. I get my monitor right. Um, and uh, as a professor of emergency medicine at the UC Irvine School of Medicine, among other departments he heads there, he is the director of disaster medical services, I'm saying, for the Department of Emergency Medicine. He's an expert in disaster medicine, including all forms of weapons of mass destruction, preparation and response to national disasters such as earthquakes. He has an international faculty he has international faculty appointments and is a consultant for the Department of Defense as well as um, other national international groups. He returns to KUCI after a stint long ago as a folk DJ. 
here um, at KUCI when he was an undergraduate in the 1970s. Dr. Koenig and Dr. Schultz are co-editors for the definitive research um, on disaster medicine published by Cambridge University Press, and we'll talk to them later about that. But I'd like to welcome you both on the show. Dr. Koenig, the UCI Center for Disaster Medicine was just established um, a year ago. Can you tell us what is the charter for the center? Absolutely. First, uh, I'd like to thank you for having us on the show and uh, for your demonstration of a real-life disaster for us to, to manage right here on the show. Well, thank you. This morning. Thank you. Now you're coming in nicely and clearly. And everybody, I want to appreciate, uh, we've got all sorts of advancement people and all that listening, and they want to see this disaster center get launched uh, on community radio. And we are going to, now we are launching it with all pistons rolling here. Well, we're very excited that the dean authorized the establishment of the Center for Disaster Medical Sciences, or CDMS. And our mission is to advance the art and science of disaster medicine through research, education, training, and public policy. In fact, we've aligned ourselves around the university mission of Discover, Teach, Heal, with Discover, of course, being Discover Research, teach being disaster education and training, and HEAL has two pieces to it. One is healing individuals through deploying people to assist victims of disasters, and the other is healing populations by developing public health policy to improve management of disasters. Indeed, and it's, we're, we're going to find out a great deal about the immensity of this and the immensity of the need for policy, the immensity of need for funding much more profoundly than we've been doing, and the, uh, the, the immensity, I think, of what uh, all of us can attend to in our own way. Um, I'd like for you also to talk about there's a relationship you have with a, another program known as the European Master in Disaster Medicine Program. Is this a, um, a training for not paraprofessional, but professionals in uh, attending to physicians uh, in, and, and policymakers in responses to disasters, medical disasters? The European Master of Disaster Medicine, or the EMDM, is a very unique program, and uh, UC Irvine has been affiliated uh, through our department for uh, many, many years with this program. What it is is a second-level master's program. So the students in this program have to either have a medical degree or another advanced degree, and they can apply, and we take a small group of students, about 35 students per year, it's very competitive, and they come from countries all over the world. And these are people who are learning about how to manage global disasters better, and they are going to be working in their home countries in high-level uh, health policy positions. It's a year-long program that's done in a very cost-effective manner. It's mostly virtual where people are working interactively um, on computer platforms for education and training. For example, they can have a disaster drill that takes place real-time in different time zones around the world with everybody participating. 
And then for two weeks every year, there's an on-site training, generally in one of the headquarter universities in Italy, where the students and the professors come together with interactive uh, live sessions. And then all of the students have to, of course, do a thesis, uh, a publishable quality thesis to improve knowledge and research in the field of disaster medicine. Well, I'm glad you explained that because uh, on the website there for the center there at UCI, it, um, I wasn't sure exactly who was involved in this, but it had to be at least physician-trained, uh, uh, leveled individuals to uh, take it up more notches to address the disaster component of their practices. And, and UCI uh, was elevated to an organizing university status, uh, which is very prestigious, and invited just recently, in fact, to be part of the EMDM Academy, uh, which is based in Switzerland. We also do a lot of work with the World Health Organization. Excellent, excellent. And we've, so we've got, all, we've got everybody, and we're very glad that you're here because we know you're constantly on the move and plugging into all of those networks and uh, levels of policymaking, levels of medical research and that kind of thing. So really it makes it such a privilege to have both of you on today. Well, let's talk about this definitive text and why it's so necessary to, uh, for this text to be around. It's the Koenig and Schultz's Disaster Medicine Comprehensive Principles and Practices intended for anyone who manages or trains people involved in disaster response, including public health officials, paramedics, hospital staff, and medical school. Uh, tell us what you want, um, why this book is so necessary. And uh, Dr. Schultz, I want you to jump in any time now because you're the director of research there at the Center for Disaster Medicine, and we're, we're trying to find out what's, what are we having to address that this text addresses, and what do we... We'll start from there, and then we'll talk about why it is that it's... Uh, so long in coming, getting more support and uh, in in this field. Well, it, it it takes a critical mass of of knowledge and expertise to crystallize a a new study and a new field of medicine. And and so this uh, a, a textbook which sort of codifies all of these uh, uh, factors. It, it it can't just grow up uh, overnight. There needs to be a certain amount of time that passes as, as more experts come to the field, as more knowledge is accumulated. And you get to a, a critical point where, uh, which we have reached where there is sufficient uh, national and international experts and the amount of knowledge uh, is sufficient to justify the, the uh, creation of a textbook which begins to, to lay out what the agenda is for the specialty. And uh, that's what we, uh, Dr. Koenig and I, attempted uh, to do with this textbook. Um, uh, we believe it's, it's the first clear uh, delineation of, of the, the level of expertise and the knowledge uh, for, that supports this specialty. But in addition, we wanted to, to uh, uh, in, uh, encourage the further development of the specialty. So each of the chapters in the book uh, actually concludes with recommendations by, by the experts as to what areas of, of knowledge are still missing and what new research uh, should occur in the future to improve the care of disaster victims. So the book is not just a summary of the current state of the art, but is also sort of a, uh, a blueprint for where the specialty should go in the future. And, and this makes it fairly unique. And that blueprint, what, yes, Dr. What, Koenig. What we're seeing happening here, Claudia, is we're helping to create a new body of knowledge. Disaster medical sciences, it, it's very exciting because it's a new field. Nobody has even agreed on 
terminology or vocabulary to describe disaster. What is a disaster? And so we've put together a group of international experts in this book for a comprehensive look to try to lay an academic foundation to look at a scientifically based outcomes-driven way to describe really how to save lives. That's the bottom line. When we have these catastrophes, how do we best manage things, not just by anecdotes, but what's the science behind it? And this is a very new and evolving field where there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of research to be done. And we can't do it in classic ways. We can't do the classic randomized controlled trial where we put one group of people in an earthquake and another group of people not in the earthquake and see how they do. We have to get very uh, creative in terms of how we research this area. Wow. There's the immensity right there. And I'm thinking, you know, in, um, in military arenas, every, every, uh, combatant gets to drill 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 what they're going to do in battle but this we we don't have that kind of a thing in disaster medicine do we well, and that's exactly right and why we're doing some of the types of training that we do. Drilling is very important, and we're very happy to have a new simulation center on main campus at UC Irvine. Uh, Dr. Eric McCoy is our director of education and research who's overseeing the training at the simulation center so that we can simulate these types of events. And also through the course I mentioned, uh, the program called the European Master in Disaster Medicine, we do a lot of training because you're exactly right. Well, I, I, the, the yes, courses, Dr. We Schultz. Do actually do uh, train uh, to some extent. There's a, a, a really a requirement by the uh, entity that, that uh, uh, basically supervises all hospitals and makes sure that their quality is, is, is good, the Joint Commission, and they mandate that the hospitals throughout the country uh, have two disaster drills per year. So uh, there is an ongoing training. The, the issue is the military has uh, substantial funds to support their mission, and uh, there really isn't a lot of money currently available to support the ongoing training and drills for hospitals and providers. So the, the, this exposure and, and this training is, is more limited, but it is still, as you point out, uh, very important to, to, uh, to practice. I mean, you, you would hardly want to field a football team or a baseball team and just go out and, and have a game. Uh, you obviously have to practice many times before you actually field the team, and that's the, the, what we would hope would, would be uh, uh, going on in the future. Uh, we still are, are, are somewhat limited because of the lack of funds, but we still uh, do engage in these kind of drills every year. And so back to using that sports analogy, Dr. Schultz and Dr. Koenig, there's uh, coaches would be remiss in their function if they weren't scouting what was going on with the opposition. And uh, you're, the best scouting you can do is to bring those international experts, as you have in your co-edited book, to talk uh, from Taiwan, from, uh, from Israel, from Ireland, and all those places who can talk about their, the scenarios that they've gone through, or you can... Uh, reel backward and see what's going on, but it's not nearly the extent to which we, in more casual settings, see this kind of preparation. That's right, it's, and it's very important to have the training before you do the drills. Otherwise, uh, it's like taking a final exam without ever studying. That's it's crazy making thinking of that. And I'm, I, I wanted to, uh, we wanted to talk about different situations that are um, that are likely to occur, and mostly in California. But before we do that, I wanted to, in the general way, as I've talked with Dr. Schultz a little bit beforehand, of why is it that this field is 
some 20 years behind in term, uh, compared to where other medical fields are. That what, what, we're, what we're groping with in uh, terms of getting, capturing the attention, capturing the data so that we can um, get the best possible response to minimize the hazard. Well, the, the consequence of, of being the new, the new kid on the block, essentially, is that um, <clears throat> you, you, there, there's a certain um, skepticism within the, the house of medicine that, that this is a really uh, uh, essential part of medicine and that there sort of needs to be room at the table for this new specialty. So there's a certain amount of that, and that's healthy. Um, you certainly uh, don't want uh, anyone just declaring themselves as a, a new field of medicine and, 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 and then funding them without substantial evidence that that, in fact, is true. Uh, but part of the, uh, of the other issue is, is that I think that we've gotten to that point, but there is still not a support structure to, to fund what we do. And, and that really, unfortunately, the, the name of the game is financial support. Uh, without funding, it's very hard to uh, pull together the expertise to look at what we're doing and then uh, make improvements. And, and that's really been the issue. So for the last 20 years, there hasn't been a center or uh, a, a, any kind of uh, organization whose mandate has been to fund disaster medicine research such that we can improve the care of victims. And that's really the bottom line. We want to do a better job, and we, and we want to be doing something different than we were 20 years ago. And, and most of the rest of medicine works that way. There are uh, dedicated centers that fund the research in, in various fields, and so we progress. We get uh, better, better uh, cardiology care and, and better cancer care. Um, but there isn't a center that does that for disasters. And so um, it's harder to move the, the specialty forward because of this lack of funding. Yes, Dr. And some of the other challenges are that, are that we're preparing for the what if. When Dr. Schultz and I work our shifts in the emergency department, we see patients coming in with heart attacks. We see patients coming in after car crashes. But we don't typically see patients coming in after bioterrorism or an earthquake. So it's much easier to give uh, funding and attention to things you're seeing on a daily basis than these more catastrophic types of events that we only see once in a while. And quite but we see them. What, when we do see funding or interest is after an event happens, after Haiti, after Japan. That's when the interest peaks, and that's when people uh, are more willing to get prepared. The other challenge is that we're talking about a multidisciplinary specialty. We are professors of emergency medicine, but uh, this specialty also involves public health, it involves law enforcement, it involves emergency medical services, it involves uh, psychology and sociology, all kinds of different specialties, geology, um, physics, all different kinds of disciplines need to be brought to the because we're talking about very complex events with many different facets. Many facets, many jurisdictions. Oh, yes. It's, I mean, wrapping our heads around this, it's, it's amazing. And uh, you were talking uh, about, uh, well, one thing we'd earlier mentioned, uh, discussed, was that we're, in order to get more public support for the essential research and the funding for that essential research is to, the cap to maintain that attention after each of these catastrophes. And we've talked about that attention has a sort of a, a drop-off kind of a, a profile. That it, It's intense interest, and then we see crisis fatigue or victim fatigue. And so um, how, uh, in your lectures internationally, are you able to um, engage policymakers and uh, foundations to um, 
like you know federal federally established foundations, not the private foundations, ones that you can count on sustained funding for. Um, how do you engage them in dealing with that uh, undermining cr- uh, crisis fi- victim fatigue? It's it's a real challenge, and that has been one of the, the the classic dilemmas. If you look at the history of the state of California with regards to seismic uh, improvements in in building codes, they all basically parallel large earthquakes. Um, it, it took the 1933 Long Beach earthquake to begin this this process of examining the kinds of structures that we build and and looking at how they perform in earthquakes and, and mandating that future structures uh, be, be better uh, constructed so that they don't collapse in earthquakes. And then uh, that goes on for a while, and then you don't see much more legislation uh, after, usually it's two to three years after an event, is the time window you have to, um, to make any kind of significant policy change. And then after that, uh, people are on to the next issue, and, and you lose that ability. Uh, we saw the same thing after the Northridge earthquake. Uh, there was... Uh, legislation that came on uh, after that to improve the quality of hospital construction. Uh, and, and that really uh, crystallized and, and was completed within two to three years after the Northridge earthquake. But the implementation of that has now started to lag because there was never any funds appropriated to help hospitals retrofit or, or build their new buildings. Uh, this has become a huge unfunded mandate. And the, the will of people to, to make this work has, has uh, sort of fatigued over time. So there isn't legislation to create the funding for this, and they're already starting to uh, um, withdraw some of the recommendations or to postpone some of the, the deadlines for these uh, retrofits to happen for the reality that, that they're just, it's not possible to make this work under, under the current fiscal environment. So th- these, these uh, if people mean well and, and they want these things to happen, but over time the, the uh, political and the economic will to make them happen atrophies and they, uh, they basically then lie fallow until the next event. So the, again, this, this has partly to do with uh, finding entities uh, that will exist in perpetuity to, to continually evaluate what's going on in, in the disaster world and whose mandate it is to make sure that there is funding available to improve the care victims uh, on a continuing basis, rather than waiting for each event, then there's an outpouring of funding and an outpouring of interest, which then atrophies over two to three years, and, and then it stagnates till the next event, trying to create a, a more permanent interest uh, and a more permanent source of funding to make these things happen. I, I so just, what you're seeing is you're seeing a huge psychological and behavioral influence to what we're doing. In fact, we've just hired a new researcher for the center, uh, Dr. Chip Schreiber, who's uh, concentrating, who's a a national expert on these behavioral issues. And one of the things we talk about is plan for what people will do rather than for what you want them to do. So we have to be pragmatic and realistic. And, for example, there's been studies looking at people's interest in taking training, and it does peak after there's an event and then wanes off. So one of the techniques we use is something called just-in-time training so that we can train people after an event in terms of what they really need to know. For example, clinicians on the front line, if they would need to take care of radiologic victims um, after the incident in Japan. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see. Um, I wanted to just let those who are tuning in right now, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. We're talking to Center for uh, Disaster Medicine Director, Dr. Christy Koenig, and Research Director at the Center, Dr. Carl Schultz. Um, 
And with um, this just-in-time training, the just-in-time training is targeted to medical professionals as well as other jurisdictions involved in a disaster? Absolutely. As I mentioned before, this is a multidisciplinary field. Yes. And in many cases, what we're seeing is an issue with managing the incident, coordinating all the various resources that are needed, rather than an actual lack of resources. So we have to train people in what we call an incident command system or incident management system, in addition to just the straightforward uh, medical care of patients. I remember that when I was taking my... uh my uh, HIPAA renewal here at UCI, we had to identify where that fit in the scheme of things. So it's, but it's not very many people that get a look at that, I have to admit. Well, um, I think it's time that we move into actual disasters. And we have one as far as what Germany has experienced in the E. coli uh, outbreak. Um, I think, Dr. Christie, you've been called on to, um, to uh, weigh in with that. And uh, what, what can you say is the sort of spreading pending uh, kind of consequence of that outbreak uh, on, on our California shores. Yes, in fact, I just returned from Beijing, uh, the World Congress on Disaster and Emergency Medicine, uh, where we were meeting with uh, World Health Organization representatives, among others, and there was a lot of discussion about this outbreak. Uh, Fortunately, it seems that um, it's becoming less of a threat, but over the past couple of weeks, uh, we weren't quite sure how widespread this would be. And uh, this, uh, just to to let the listeners know, is something uh, that began in northern Germany. Initially, there was misinformation, and they were saying that the E. coli that was infecting people uh, was transmitted from cucumbers in Spain, and that turned out not to be true. So this is an example of something I call an evolving event, uh, where the facts are changing as we go along, and we have to change our management techniques. Uh, but what we were seeing is patients uh, infected with this uh, very virulent form of E. coli, and some of them were getting a form of kidney failure and actually dying. And then they could be young, healthy people that were dying from this. And uh, there was an epidemiologic investigation that went on. And so in terms of how it's affecting us here in California, we would need to be on the lookout for patients who had either traveled uh, to that part of Germany where it, it seems like this is coming from certain types of sprouts, such as bean sprouts that were ingested there, or who had close contacts with people who had traveled there, because this is something that's passed by what we call the fecal-oral route. So if people are not washing their hands properly when they're preparing food, for example, it could be passed on then to another person. To my knowledge, um, Here at UCI, we've not seen any cases of this, and they seem to have a better handle on the etiology and the investigation of this point. But there's going to be a next big thing, whether it's uh, SARS or something else, that will behave similarly to this. And that's why we have systems in place to monitor these types of outbreaks and uh, let people know from a public health standpoint what they need to do to protect themselves and others and how to treat patients. And Dr. Schultz, did you have something to add to that before we move on to Disaster B? (laughs) This is an excellent example of the ongoing nature of what we do. Um, You cannot predict what the next uh, emerging infectious disease will be. But one thing you can be sure of is there will always be a new infectious disease. 
there were HIV, SARS, um, the novel uh, H1N1 influenza, to, to pretend that, that these are sort of isolated events and that once we get it fixed, we can go back to business as usual is naive. These kind of things, as the, as the uh, world gets much closer and uh, air travel being as sophisticated as it is, these are all threats to become world uh, disasters. Not that they will, but that that threat exists. And so these policies that, that can be put in place <clears throat> are important not just to be disease-specific, but to, to consider that this is going to be something we will be dealing with for the foreseeable future, new outbreaks of various disease. So support for public health is critical because much of, of the initial response to these are not going to be done by emergency physicians, but are going to be done by people who are uh, engaged in these kind of surveillances on, on an ongoing basis. And the public health plays a key role in a lot of these responses. So I, I think that this is a sort of a, 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 not that we needed yet another wake-up call, but that this is clearly an example of the, the kinds of threats we will face uh, essentially uh, forever as new uh, diseases emerge and that we have to be prepared to identify them and then instigate the control measures. And, and it, it can't be based on just one particular entity, but looking at how, as a system, we manage these things. Again, this is why the emerging field of disaster medicine is so important. Is it hard? And, and let's not yes. forget that this can have huge economic impacts for, for example, farmers, food safety, all this type of thing. So it's more than just the medical effects. Right, right. That, their, their whole entire livelihood collapses in a season or a longer term, depending on, the, I guess, the source of the, um, the nature of the disaster. Um, I, I wanted to, um, there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about this. I wanted to um, go on to some other disasters. Um, and I guess I also kind of curious about sort of cultural proclivities, what, which cultures are better responders at uh, that. We can talk about that as we talk about each of these disasters. Going to um, uh, other kinds of natural disasters, uh, there's a different reaction time for different natural disasters with a, with a hurricane, not that um, uh, we get the tsunamis on the Pacific coast, with an earthquake, uh, with wildfires and that kind of a thing. So how, um, we, with, based on different uh, warning time frames, what are we training professionals to do in responding to disasters? That's a very astute question. Uh, one thing we do is what's called a hazard vulnerability analysis. And what that means is, depending on where we are, we look at what are the most likely hazards and what are the most severe hazards. For example, in California, we're very concerned about earthquakes as opposed to, say, Florida, where there'd be much more concern about hurricanes. Every place would be concerned about terrorism, but that's considered less likely but potentially more devastating. For example, with an aerosolized release of a bioterrorism agent like anthrax, you could uh, expose 100,000 people, so that would have huge effects on the medical and healthcare system. So we then train for these various types of disasters, and as you point out, there's different flavors, if you will, of disasters. There can be disasters that have no notice or very little notice, such as an earthquake, and there can be other disasters where we know it's coming, such as a hurricane, and can predict it and prepare ahead of time. So there are different techniques used. For example, if you need to evacuate a hospital on the spot versus if you have three days to evacuate the hospital. Right, right. And so the surge looks different for either one of them, the surge of the responders. 
That's, uh, that's correct. In, in fact, uh, some of the research we've been doing uh, looking at uh, the movement of patients' uh, evacuations from hospitals and hospital preparedness uh, have identified both uh, commonalities and differences in some of the challenges faced in evacuating after an earthquake versus uh, evacuating after um, a hurricane. Um, many of these uh, issues where, uh, especially in the hurricane situation, where you have made the decision to at least partially evacuate your hospital, that doesn't stop people from arriving seeking care uh, at, your, at your emergency department. So that we've now uh, shown that emergency departments have to continue providing care or be prepared to provide care even in the midst of the hospital evacuation because people are going to show up uh, at, their, at their department needing care. Uh, and so that these are, are, are sort of um, planning issues to, to make sure that you have the, the, the surge capacity to handle them, even if you're evacuating your hospital. Yes, I just wanted to pick up on uh, something you said about the international work and, and learning from our colleagues and sharing with our colleagues. One of the unique programs that our cent center sponsors is called the International Disaster Medical Sciences Fellowship. And what we do is we take uh, fellows from other countries for uh, one to two years and train them in disaster medical sciences with the goal that they would then go back to their country of origin and improve health and medical preparedness systems in their home country. For example, right now uh, we have a fellow from Kuwait and another one from Malaysia. <clears throat> My goodness. And uh, so, it, but this, this does not mimic the, the European, uh, the Master in Disaster Program, but it's a similar kind of one-year stint where a professional is getting trained from anywhere else in the world to address the, the, these, um, this body of knowledge. I mean, but it's somewhat parallel, is it? It, it is a completely separate program. Uh, there are some similar features in that we're tra training very uh, senior people. These are fellows. These are people who have already have medical degrees and already have training. And, in fact, um, some of them are at very high levels uh, to start with in their home countries. I want to remind uh, anyone who's just tuned in, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. Our guests this full hour are Dr. Christy Koenig, Director of the Center for Disaster Medicine and Head of Research, Dr. Carl Schultz. Well, uh, we want to move now into um, the uh, bioterrorist kind of uh, response. Is there something specific to that when you're lecturing around the world uh, that uh, are the highlights of, of what we as listeners can uh, can have a better understanding about? It uh, um, depends on, on really the needs of the of the people to which you are uh, are trying to address. The it, it depends on their particular requirements. Um, for instance, in uh, in countries that uh, are oftentimes the uh, uh, the potential targets, first world countries, um, their needs um, are they're not so much uh, a resource issue. Although obviously, there's never enough money to do everything you want to do. Never. But but there's uh, um, an, an issue of um, looking at the cultures of the countries and and how they respond. Um, for instance, there are some interesting studies looking at uh, smallpox in uh, the United States. And people have uh, an inherent uh, distrust of, of authority uh, in the U.S. And so in, a, uh, in, in certain kinds of mock drills where there was a, a release of smallpox, 
a sizable percent, up to 40% of the population, was afraid to get the smallpox vaccine because uh, they perceived this as, as being a risk to them in some way, either that they were going to get the disease if they went to the centers or that they somehow felt this was some sort of uh, uh, conspiracy. And it would, it's, it's really concerning that that many people would not uh, avail themselves of a life-saving intervention, uh, the smallpox vaccine. So th- th- it's, it's not just the science that, that uh, we as, as dis- disaster experts uh, must be familiar with, but also uh, how to deliver this information uh, so that people will actually um, perform in a way that's in their own best interest. And there's a, a whole field evolving called uh, risk, uh, uh, ah, I'm blocking on the name of it. Uh, crisis. crisis and emergency risk communications. Uh, crisis and uh, emergency risk communication that um, specifically addresses these issues. And so uh, even as we are trying to, to deal with the science, we also have to be uh, cognizant of how people perceive instructions and how they behave so that we can, uh, to the extent possible, mitigate these kinds of uh, negative uh, perceptions and, and improve outcomes. And is that covered in the comprehensive principles and practices, that the sort of uh, breaking down the cultural responses to... Um or uh, cultural inhibitions, cultural biases about uh, preparedness? Yes. Uh, actually, there are several chapters that address this. One is the, the health risk communication chapter. There's also a chapter uh, on uh, what they call special populations, which is uh, individuals who are, are sort of not in the mainstream when it comes to disaster response, such like, uh, for instance, children, um, uh, patients with psychiatric illnesses, the elderly, uh, those who uh, reside in nursing homes, there's a whole group of individuals who are, are not easily, uh, or who do, cannot not easily avail themselves of uh, disaster response uh, resources and can be marginalized. And this also includes uh, some cultural issues. For instance, uh, in the uh, earthquake in San Francisco in 1989, um, there's a large Hispanic population in, in the area that was impacted by the earthquake. And uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency went in and tried to uh, provide resources and posted signs that the Federal Emergency Management Agency was here to help, but the Hispanic population perceived this as, as, as perhaps immigration and were afraid of deportation. So even though they were in need of assistance, they did not participate and did not request assistance because of fear of deportation. So there are, are definitely wow. ways to, to address these kinds of events, but you have to be aware of them, otherwise you're not going to get the response <clears throat> that you want. Well, I, your, yes, your Dr. Kane. Bioterrorism is—it's a, a very uh, complex uh, phenomena. Fortunately, we don't have a lot of experience with actual events. Uh, when I was the national director of emergency management for the Department of Veterans Affairs from 1999 to 2004, you may notice that uh, 9/11 falls within that yes. spectrum. In in Washington, was quite a busy, busy time. And uh, we had to manage the anthrax letter attacks. Now, we didn't really think about anthrax being passed through the mail. And, in fact, it was not recognized initially that this was a bioterrorism attack. It thought the first patient who was discovered in Florida, initially the Secretary of Health and Human Services said on the news, this is not bioterrorism. And we later found out that it was. But yet the classic type of bioterrorism that we prepare for is something where the terrorists would do what's called weaponizing 
the uh, bioterrorism agent and releasing it through the air, aerosolizing it and releasing it over a large population and affecting, say, 100,000 people or more, whereas there was only a handful of people affected in reality and a very few deaths from this anthrax letter, it completely disrupted society. We had people microwaving their mail. They were uh, afraid to, to go to work. Uh, I had my assistant open my mail. That's how I handled it. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but it, microwaving would have really been enough. Caused all kinds of issues. We had all kinds of hoaxes and false alarms. Uh, people seeing white powder from donuts on the street and calling nine one one, making the ambulance then unavailable for the regular heart attack victim, for example. So even though this was relatively small in terms of the number of people directly affected. It had huge, huge effects on our society, uh, huge changes in terms of funding, in terms of programs that came up. The, the Fed started giving money for bioterrorism preparedness, and what we did is we tried to use that in a more all-hazard way and prepare for these natural pandemics, if you will, as well, because it's a very similar type of preparation, but supposedly it was earmarked only for bioterrorism preparedness. So you have... Your work, we have our work cut out for us, but especially the disaster professionals, that it's not apparent there is a disaster, even though there is a disaster, or it's pronounced prematurely or probably in a, uh, incorrectly, it's pronounced a disaster when it isn't. So it's a, the, the, uh, the bar here is, it's not moving, it's rattling <laughs> up and down. And this comes back to what we were discussing before, yes. that there's not necessarily a clear definition of disaster, and this has implications for funding, for training, for policy, and so forth. Uh, just to give you a real-life example of that, suppose a plane crashed at John Wayne Airport. Well, most people there have been a few. Think that's a disaster, right? Right. But if you're working, for example, at the hospital, and everybody in that plane died, it wouldn't affect your operations at all, so it wouldn't really be a disaster to your system. Okay. So that's part of the measurement is whether the infrastructure can handle the additional load uh, along with the, the regular load it sustains. That's right. And at the most uh, basic common sense approach, a disaster is an event or a situation where the resources are insufficient to meet the medical and health care needs of the affected population. Well, I wanted to um, talk about, again, uh, around that topic is the best one can make, of, the best the profession can make of previous experiences or ongoing disasters. Uh, Dr. Schultz talked about the need for a waiver in the regular protocol for reporting patients so that the public health, um, the, uh, you can help me out this, Dr. Schultz, how, sure. how the protocol can kick into a, a public health kind of label so that disclosure of patients' uh, data is made readily available for uh, a much better response, much better research for subsequent responses. This gets back to the, there, are, there are two major issues trying to uh, improve disaster medicine so that uh, in 20 years from now we will not be doing what we are doing today. Uh, one of those we've already talked about, which is funding, but the other has to do with access to the information that is needed so we can figure out what it is that we did 
well and what it is that we didn't do so well so we can do a better job of it. And that comes down to essentially finding out what happens to patients when we care for them after disaster. Uh, and currently, uh, th- this, has, uh, th- this is somewhat difficult to obtain because we have privacy laws, which are, are good, not, not, not knocking them, right. uh, to protect patients from uh, the, the inappropriate release of their information. Right. The problem is that the, the current laws uh, have been be- become a little bit uh, more um, uh, str- uh, stringently interpreted than was really the intent of Congress, to the point that now uh, it, the, it begins to stifle the ability to actually improve the care of patients. And so uh, one of the solutions to this uh, that the, the center is involved with, which has to, again, looking at public policy, is to have all injuries and illnesses that are related to declared disasters uh, reportable to public health. And diseases that are reportable to public health are exempt from, from uh, the HIPAA restrictions, which is the Health Insurance uh, and Portability Act that uh, impacts whether hospitals can release information. Uh, and public health has a... Uh, centuries-long history of protecting individual uh, information. Uh, we don't even think twice about uh, releasing some of our most um, uh, personal information having to do with sexually transmitted diseases to public health uh, in order to limit the spread of these diseases, and, and we have confidence that they will protect our confidentiality. And so uh, releasing or, or at least making these uh, diseases, uh, injuries and illnesses after disasters uh, reportable to public health allows researchers to go in under supervision and uh, actually get the data on what happened to victims. If we did certain procedures, if we applied certain kinds of treatment algorithms, what happened to them? Did they get better? Did they get worse? And that will allow us to change what we do so that there is an improvement in outcomes. And what we can do with uh, limited that's resources. That we're trying to advocate very yes. strongly for at this time. Yes, yes. Um, and what we can do with, I mean, since resources are scarce, this is essential that this information be applied as as you know, immediately as possible, as as profoundly as possible. Well, I I know we're about ready to wrap up. I I I'm going to commit the uh, cardinal sin of interviewing as asking uh, one last sort of I don't know how it may be easy to answer that. Um, but I know listeners are probably concerned about okay, this is a huge multi-jurisdictional, multi-field uh, uh, kind of um, uh, an ordeal to attend to and with known and unknowns um, uh, as the, 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 the particular crisis unfolds. But what, is there anything at all individuals can do to contribute to a, a better, broader public health outcome? Sure, Absolutely. I would advise everyone tonight to go home and make sure you have a personal preparedness plan in place that you can take care of yourself and your family and be self-sufficient for at least 72 hours, including having access to medications, clothing, uh, any type of supplies you might need, a plan for communications with the family. And there's lots of uh, lists of this on the website because you can't expect uh, help after a catastrophic disaster to be available to you immediately. I also wanted to give the listeners our web address for our Absolutely. center. Absolutely. It took us this long. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Yes. And that would be cdms for Center for Disaster Medical Sciences dot uci dot edu. That's cdms dot uci dot edu. That's fresh off. That's this last year that that's been in, in existence, and so it's a. Uh, we've had an emergency management manager for Orange County after the 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 earthquake, tsunami, and um, 
the radioactive replications of the Sunday earthquake. And so um, I, uh, we had covered some of this, but it, it needs to, this also needs to be drilled in terms of uh, how we can be prepared. Well, I, I really want to thank you both for bearing with the, um, the, the disaster crisis management of I found out what one little item was uh, amiss, and uh, we got you today when uh, you've been, you're probably on your way to Kuala Lumpur or uh, Key West or, um, uh, or, Taiwan, or Dublin. Pardon me? Taiwan. Ta- all, I mean, all these places. So to have you both on this one-hour show with us was an enormous uh, privilege and a treat. And uh, I hope listeners are going to take to heart that when they hear about funding crunches, they're thinking, well, there's another place that needs attention, and we need to advocate for that support when physicians tell us that there, there's an immense crisis it's inevitable whatever it's going to be if there it's there's an inevitability to these unfolding and i want to uh, thank you both for adding to our literacy of what looms uh, in a very complicated way and uh, we wish you well in launching all the activities and plans of the center thank you so very very much thank you thank you take care all the best now uh, we're going to uh, just mention that the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the management at KUCI, nor the University of California Board of Regents. And I would love to uh, hear back, hear from anybody what they thought they learned today. And we have another medical-related program next week about stem cell research going to Switzerland. So uh, meanwhile, we're after George Rosales. Uh, after this, we'll ser- serve up some of his music. We'll stay tuned. Mm-hmm.